0: This episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast brought to you in part by Bison Bison, the American Bison. And now, a word from our sponsor. The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Reinhardt Schultz, research affiliate at the University of Nebraska, said, There's not been a complete focus on grassland systems or rangeland systems. Grasslands get lumped together in a soup bowl of other vegetation types, and most of the focus goes to charismatic biomes like tropical rainforests. Grasslands are, in fact, the least protected and most under threat. My guests today offer a clear picture of the value of the Great Plains for biodiversity and restoration potential, as well as a strong ray of hope for rewilding the American Serengeti. Nicole Rosmarino is director of the Southern Plains Land Trust, which has so far established six prairie preserves in southeastern Colorado, which cover over 38,000 acres of native grassland. Daniel Kinka is wildlife restoration manager for American Prairie Reserve, which is stitching together 3 million acres of existing public lands using private lands purchased from willing sellers in Montana. So what's so great about the Great Plains? Our ancient
1: grasslands under strict protections can really be soul-stirring places. And I don't think that's an accident. Uh, I really subscribe to the savanna and uh, biophilia hypotheses that humans have an innate inclination for savanna environments, uh, given the very origins of our species in African savannas. And I add to that um, the potential of reintroducing charismatic megafauna, such as bison, as well as taking the time to absorb the little things. You know, a beautiful prairie flower tucked among the rocks. Uh, This is a place uh, of extraordinary beauty and really becomes fascinating, uh, well-deserving of more preservation efforts if we just take the time to immerse ourselves in the prairie.
2: Yeah, I don't know if I can improve on that. I I really like Nicole's answer and I would agree with it. I think oftentimes what you hear in terms of an answer to this question is, you know, by many definitions, grasslands, savannas, shrublands are the most imperiled ecosystem on the planet. Um, they have the least amount of protection. I think many people may have been confronted with that at some point, that fact, but I think what gets lost in that kind of factual information is the is the kind of biophilia part that Nicole mentioned. Um, you know, I think the way I answer this question is, you know, if for any amateur ecologist that's ever looked at the African savanna and gone, huh, I wonder why they're Grasslands, their savannas have so much wildlife, or so much wilder than ours. Are, are are the northern Great Plains somehow different or deficient? And the answer is no. The reason that they are de-wilded is entirely artificial, in the sense that it's not natural. Um, but the good news is we can we can put that back together. All the pieces remain for the most part, and so the grasslands can be conserved, preserved, and restored. Uh, and so why wouldn't they? I, I think we have an innate attraction to that particularly when they're intact, and maybe less so when they are not intact. So I think a big part of my job, and maybe Nicole would agree, is reminding people that American savannas, if you will, the Northern Great Plains has all the could have all of the kind of majesty and grandeur of the savannas in Africa. Um, It just doesn't really look like that today.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with, with Danny. It's really a process of just reminding uh, you know, in the 1800s, European aristocrats were streaming to the Great Plains, um, you know, bypassing the coast to head straight to this incredible bestiary that I think Dan Flores really captures beautifully Absolutely. in his book. Um, I, I think that if we if we take the time to create um, the, the preserves that uh, Southern Plains Land Trust and American Prairie are establishing um, that can provide that that space for the native wildlife to bounce back and restore the species that are missing, it, it really will be a beautiful um, result. And I think that all we need to do is really capture that history and communicate that to um, the rest of the of the country or the continent um, to to bring back the American Serengeti. And I would also say that grasslands are great (laughs) because they're critical to the health of our planet. Uh, This is one of the planet's largest carbon sinks, and we need to defend it. And uh, we're finding that with the advance of climate change, that grasslands may become increasingly important to defending the climate's health, um, especially um, unplowed grasslands. So I, I really think we should start considering these ancient grasslands as a, as a precious uh, resource in the fight for the climate.
0: I want to expand a little bit on what each of you are doing, American Prairie and Southern Plains are doing, to rewild in your respective areas. If you'd like to give an example of the work that you're doing, to rewild the grasslands. Starting with you,
2: Daniel. I think the easiest way to explain kind of how American Prairie thinks about rewilding is, is kind of three buckets. It's, it's about land, it's about wildlife, and it's about people. And so wildlife is probably the most obvious one if we're talking about rewilding. But land oftentimes comes first in our model because without the land to rewild, rewilding can't happen in a vacuum, right? Animals need a place to live. They need habitat. So a big part of American Prairie's project is accumulating that habitat, building a habitat base that's large enough to be meaningful for grasslands. And grasslands just, they need a ton of space. So American Prairie is intended to be about one and a half times the size of Yellowstone National Park. It's Yellowstone and Glacier put together, basically. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about in terms of space needs for some of these larger animals like bison, not to mention migratory species, Um, many of them being birds. In terms of the actual kind of species rewilding stuff, we do a lot of this through partnership and you might call it kind of passive rewilding, um, not to get too into the weeds, right? But American Prairie is not a wildlife agency. We're not the US Fish and Wildlife Service. We're not Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. We have no direct jurisdiction over wildlife. And this is wildlife under the legal definition, right? So. We kind of, it's, it's a little bit of, if you build it, they will come. And it's a lot of partnership with scientists, neighboring communities. We do a lot of work with the neighboring Fort Belknap Indian Reservation, which is a sovereign nation that has their own wildlife management laws and enforcement. Um, and what we've seen through that kind of delicate partnerships and maneuvering when we've been able to largely with our partnership with Smithsonian, uh, 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 work on reestablishing swift fox populations in the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation. Obviously we have quite a few bison right now. That's a bit of a, um, bison are classified as livestock in the state of Montana are part of it anyways. And so we have a lot more wiggle room with what we can do there. And there's other species reintroduction projects we can do as well. And then just briefly, I mentioned people as well. I think, you know, American prairie sees a wilded prairie as a prairie that kind of includes people. So even though it might be stretching the definition of rewilding just a little bit, we we do think a lot about recreation and enjoyment? How do we get people out there to see it? Um, You know, We don't think this prairie should exist in a vacuum. Modern ecology, prairie ecology in North America includes Homo sapiens, has for something like 13,000 years at least. And so we think about people in our model, but we think about it carefully because we know that poorly regulated human use of landscapes can oftentimes be devastating for their wildlife characteristics, their wildness characteristics. So that's a big part of our rewilding model as well
1: all of our human visitation is in the service of wildlife. Um, And we can talk about how that's been a challenge uh, because I can see the appeal of the American Prairie approach, Um, but we're really strict that it's not recreation. And so we we focus on land preservation and wildlife uh, preservation. The idea is to buy land for the wild ones, period. Uh, And we've been able to uh, protect 38,000 acres. We're in the process of trying to add another 18,000 acres this year. Uh, And it's purely private. Uh, So that does allow us to have um, much more control over preservation outcomes. Um, One, I think, a very um, important source of, of intersection between our organizations is that it really is about rewilding and about respecting all the native flora and fauna and not picking and choosing. And I think that's that's critical to understand because when you drive through, um, certainly the Southern Plains and you see large ranches uh, and then you drive through uh, the Southern Plains land trust, it's not always immediately apparent, except for the bison, um, what the difference is. And I think the critical difference is that we don't pick and choose which wildlife we want to protect. Everything is welcome from the elk and the pronghorn to the endangered musasauga rattlesnake. If it's native, it is welcome. And I think that's that's really important. Um, we we have great partnerships with our neighbors, but their their focus is different, and, and we just need to be clear about that: that for the Southern Plains Land Trust. Everything that's a native species um, is welcome here and needs the space to bounce back. And that's where that wildlife protection aspect is so critical as a part of the equation. It's not enough to just keep grasslands from being plowed. We need to protect the wildlife on those grasslands for their own sakes. And because not only do they play critical roles in natural ecosystems, but they also play roles in regulating uh, the planet's climate. And that's called reanimating the carbon cycle and the global rewilding alliance has been great about encouraging folks talking in the, in the carbon offset uh, space to really bring uh, wildlife back into the conversation because they've been largely uh, missing. Uh, but that is, that's our thrust, is really to establish refuges for prairie wildlife, to protect the land that they need to eke out an, a living without human interference, and also um, to protect the wildlife itself. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support.
0: You've both talked a little bit about Uh, this so far, but are there any other things that you'd like to talk about in terms of opportunities that you have before you to advance your efforts to conserve prairie biodiversity?
1: I would say the opportunity is um, the free market and private property. (laughs) You know, both provide us with opportunities uh, to advance um, prairie biodiversity. You know, people buy and sell land every day. Why not buy it just for the wild ones? Um, And we're continuing to expand our preserve network uh, by purchasing land adjacent to our existing properties. Uh, As I mentioned, we're in the process of trying to expand Heartland Ranch Nature Preserve. It's currently about 25,000 acres and we have 18,000 acres under contract. So we wanna grow that to 43,000 acres or nearly 70 square miles uh, this year. And we're also looking beyond um, our focus area in southeast Colorado to all of the southern plains, which includes portions of five states. Uh, so we're really trying to accelerate our pace of preserve uh, creation and expansion, inspired, no doubt, uh, by uh, the Amer- American prairie. It's very inspiring to us, and, and we feel like it's time for the south to catch up.
2: Well, I think Nicole nailed it with I mean, the big one is this idea of kind of private property rights in the free market, um, which may sound a little bit wonky, but I, I mean, I think that is a big thing that ties American Prairie to the Southern Plains Land Trust. The opportunity is it's a way of saying, well, for better, or for worse, um, you know governments seem to have lost steam in terms of setting aside protected areas whether they be national parks state parks national recreation areas whatever um we don't see big big landscapes being set aside like that anymore um so that's bad for conservation um but there's a way to do this within the private sector and that's just an absolutely enormous opportunity and it's 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 new-ish. I mean, we've been at this for about 20 years, but I mean, it does still feel like kind of a new idea. And I think there's a huge opportunity there for conservation, particularly in areas that tend to have a lot of private lands intermixed with public lands. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of the Great Plains right there. Um, The only thing that I think I would add to Nicole's uh, answers, you know, what encourages me—I guess you could think of it as an opportunity—is, you know, while the the Great Plains are being plowed up at an an alarming rate and continue to be year to year, you can find big chunks of the Great Plains that are still intact, which is to say they've never been plowed up. That's an enormous opportunity. Once that's gone, restoration is not impossible, but you've changed your timeline from, you know, a few decades to maybe a century. It's just so much, so much more work to rewild a prairie that's been pr- plowed at some point. So the amount of intact prairie is a huge opportunity. And also from the wildlife perspective, you know, the wildlife is a little bit different down where Nicole works, not a lot, but the only species that we deal with that's just extinct, that's missing entirely from the last 10,000 years is the Rocky Mountain locust. Everything else exists. If it doesn't exist on or around American Prairie now, it exists in the Rocky Mountains. We're not dealing with re-extinction or de-extinction here. We're talking about rewilding animals that are either already there and just need to be in more robust in terms of their populations or exist essentially next door, that's an enormous opportunity. And that's not an opportunity that our colleagues that are doing rewilding in in Europe, for instance, they they don't have that luxury.
1: The wildlife themselves are working hard at rewilding. Uh, And one example in our area um, is elk. I think that American Prairie probably has a lot more elk than we have, but our elk um, are struggling to come back. Um, They, you know, they, basically been relegated to the forest because of that historic overhunting, but they make their way through the canyon lands to the prairie to our Heartland Ranch Preserve. Unfortunately, outside of our borders, the hunting pressure is is really intense on those elk. And so by expanding Heartland Ranch and establishing uh, more protected areas in um, southeast Colorado, we're really trying to give those prairie elk just a boost, you know, just the space they need to wild themselves and to flourish. Um, so I, I do think that there's a lot of um, the, you know, the historic fauna that still has um, the potential to come back under their own power. Um, but then there are examples like the lesser prairie chicken where this, this species is, is so incredibly endangered. Uh, it was um, listed under the Endangered Species Act, uh, then industry managed to get it removed from the Endangered Species Act. Um, even though it is just gasping its last breath. And we can't find the birds in many places. They would likely have to be reintroduced uh, to one of our preserves. And so we're we're certainly looking to both provide the space for wildlife that remains in the area to come back, um, but certainly the bison need to be reintroduced. And and as in um, Danny's context, they're classified as livestock in Colorado, um, so it's it's very possible <laughs> to reintroduce them, uh, and we have, but there are other species that that need much more intervention, and so the lesser prairie chicken is one, and the black-footed ferret is another. Um, it, it almost went extinct. Uh, it only occurs in the wild today because of reintroduction programs, and we just signed an agreement with the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to participate in black-footed ferret reintroduction and may get Ferrets as soon as um, this fall, and we're really excited about that. But it's it's due to our strict protections for prairie dogs, on which ferrets absolutely uh, depend uh, as a life for a lifeline. Almost all of the ferrets' diet is prairie dogs, and they can't exist in the wild outside of prairie dog towns. Um, so I think it's a combination um, of really providing the space for um, the existing wildlife to flourish. And um, returning the members of this community that are missing. And what's nice about it is it's it's totally within our reach. Um, I think the only challenges we would have are um, you know the the major carnivores that are simply extirpated from the southern plains. Um, and so we focus on what's feasible um, and bringing bison back, providing the space for elk to flourish providing the habitat for grassland breeding birds to come back, not only lesser prairie chicken, but the whole guild of grassland breeding birds has been rapidly declining for decades and they can benefit from the mosaic of um, plant communities that bison grazing uh, create and also prairie dog towns uh, provide. Um, We also are doing a lot of work on our streams uh, in order to encourage beaver recolonization. And I really look at biodiversity on the shortcrest prairie as having bookends. We need bison and prairie dogs on uplands, and we need beaver uh, in the riparian areas. Uh, and with that combination, you can really have just a, a major impact on preserving the whole um, suite of, of wildlife that makes the shortcrest prairie so fascinating.
0: It feels better to say, hey, it's a lot easier for us to provide these places so that wildlife can rewild itself into these areas and seek refuge here than it is to return
2: an extirpated species through a an endangered species program i mean absolutely no doubt these the hard reintroductions are necessary right because to nicole's earlier point like This is ecological restoration. This isn't single species stuff. We need all of the component pieces in order to get that kind of like ecological epiphenomenon, if you will, right? The system only works if it's got everything in it. So it's not a bison project. It's not a black-footed ferret project. It's an everything project. In some cases, species, those hard species reintroductions are necessary um, and will continue to be necessary. The black-footed ferret is... Is a perfect example of that. Um, I mean, they barely exist in the wild at all, um, but they thankfully do fairly well in captivity. So we have a good well to draw from for reintroductions. But it, I, I think these things go better when they can happen. Uh, you know, naturally is is not the right word here. That that word gets kind of abused. But if that that kind of, I guess, if you want to call it passive rewilding. I think that that's a stickier kind of rewilding, in in my humble opinion, right? Like, what we think about a lot of American prairie is social carrying capacity, which is just a fancy scientific jargony term for tolerance for wildlife. I think a major impediment to restoring wildlife throughout the Great Plains, and and you could say in a lot of the modern world, is, is tolerance for wildlife. Particularly in America, we will have as much wildlife as people are willing to tolerate. These animals are not extinct in most cases. They're extirpated from a lot of places and they've been pushed to the very fringes of where they can exist, the tops of mountains, places we haven't figured out how to cultivate or build houses. But they're not gone, and there is space for them to exist again. They require tolerance. And I think I think it's fair to say that at least it's a it's a it's a strong hypothesis to say that if you want to increase tolerance, if you want to do rewilding by way of increasing tolerance, People tend to have higher acceptance for the kind of passive rewilding when the wildlife kind of reestablished themselves than they do for the hard rewilding. We still have to do the latter, but if you can do it in that kind of easier process, I, I just think it's easier to sell people on that. I think it's easier to show people that like there's a way to coexist alongside wildlife in a modern context where wildlife can be happy and people can be happy and we can we can both live better lives alongside one another. I, I think that's a lot easier to demonstrate when it can be kind of done slow and over time and you can show that the wildlife have the ability to do it rather than somebody like me bringing these things in in on the back of a trailer.
1: Yeah, that's really well said, Danny. Um, And it reminds me of another opportunity that we haven't discussed, which is sort of turning that tolerance into excitement because Mm -hmm. a lot of the rural areas and certainly I think the context that both of our organizations are working in um, have experienced economic stagnation. And there are uh, elected officials and uh, public policy makers in these rural Great Plains communities um, that have embraced the idea of economic diversification, which I think both of our organizations can deliver to those local economies. there is a, a real need in the Southern Great Plains Um, for a more robust service sector. And when we have visitors coming to our preserves or scientists in the service of wildlife, um, they're going to stop at local gas stations, motels, and hotels, uh, and they're going to help that fledgling uh, service economy. And I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for county commissioners and mayors um, that I've talked with that totally understand something needs to change. Um, These economies, these rural economies aren't serving everybody in the community. Uh, For example, the county that our largest preserves are based in is Bent County, which has, it's Bent County, Colorado, and it has a poverty rate three times the state average. Anyone looking at that, would have to say there's a problem, (laughs) we need to do something different. And I think economic diversification, um, nature based um, visitation is really part of of the solution.
0: I was getting ready to say your islands in the Great Plains, but you're really small archipelagos uh, forming in the Great Plains of different lands that you manage and, and, and look after. And the Great Plains is a massive place. I mean, what would it take for the Great Plains to
2: truly mirror the Serengeti in your minds? This is a really important point because at American Prairie, we talk about size constantly, right? To to kind of stretch that analogy to the breaking point. Like I, I think we'd want something a little more like on the scale of like a subcontinent. Um, but but it's still not an, it's not going to be enough all by itself. Now that the size that we aspire to 3.2 million acres is, is based on scientific evidence that says that 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 can be largely self contained when you're talking about your large mammals, right? Like that's enough area to probably contain a self-sustaining population of like your biggest mammals, something like a bison, maybe like multiple packs of wolves that don't have to exit that kind of bubble. Right. But, Ecologically, we know that that's a little ridiculous, right? Like, I mean, they are, yes, that's possible, but the plains based are almost every species that you can name. It's based on migratory patterns, right? And so Animals, in order to do the ecological work, in order for bison to be an ecosystem engineer, right? Nicole alluded to this e- earlier. They need a lot of space to work, and in order for bison populations to kind of exist, quote unquote, naturally, they would they would have to be connected somehow to other bison populations. Now we can do that by trucking around bison to make sure that there's genetic diversity between herds, and and we're maintaining those kind of like meta populations. Um, but if we look at something like birds, right? They have to migrate so much farther than the mammals do. I mean. If you think about a long-billed curlew, right? Like a super charismatic, weird gonzo-looking bird that that calls American Prairie home for part of the year. They spend the other half of the year in the plains of uh, north central Mexico. For a lot of our bird species are making those migrations down to Central America, or in some cases, all the way down to South America. And so it doesn't matter what we do for Habitat concert. Well, it only matters so much what we can do for habitat conservation on our end. If they're not protected at the other end of their migratory pattern, you won't have long-billed curlews. So Great Plains conservation really does need to look on a, across a huge landscape, much farther than is within the purview of American Prairie to think about. But if you have this kind of island model where you can have these like sanctuaries or safe space, large safe spaces where wildlife can thrive and the priority is the management of biodiversity, not the production of commodities like cattle or other livestock or crops. That combined with tolerance in the space in between, so on on working lands, on ranches, basically ranches that can coexist with kind of thriving wildlife populations, where it's not a threat to the bottom line of the business, but it kind of provides those economic diversity ways for the community to to, to diversify economically that Nicole mentioned, and and still maintain their operations in in something like a traditional model. If you have Southern Plains Land Trust and American Prairie and other organizations like it as, as islands in that sea of otherwise tolerant or semi-tolerant working lands, then it works. Then I think you can think about really enormous scale Great Plains conservation in a way that's, that's meaningful on like a global level.
1: You know, The Great Plains Conservation Network really is looking at this uh, scope uh, from, you know, Canada through the U.S. into Mexico. I would love to see more refugees in more places, but I definitely agree with Danny on, you know, the good old core buffer approach, um, mm-hmm. that the refugees really are the core. And if um, we, you know, build good relations and um, talk to our neighbors, um, then we can expand the benefits to wildlife beyond our borders. Uh, right now, Uh, We've teamed up at Southern Plains um, with uh, four of our neighbors to Heartland Ranch to modify uh, fence to make it more passable for pronghorn and elk and others. And and that will impact a 90,000 acre area, um, so far beyond our borders. And I think um, there's just a lot of opportunities to do that kind of work. Um, I'd love to to have the sort of Yellowstone to Mm (laughs) Yukon vision in in the Great Plains. Um, You know, I think the fact that it's not a well-developed vision for the Great Plains yet is is due to um, the, I think, historic lack of emphasis in the conservation community on grassland protection, but that is changing. You know, when, when we think about the scale at which We'd like to be operating. You know, I I love the idea that Danny uh, mentioned of you know of reestablishing migration. I'd also just love to see changes um, on on a day to day basis of animals. I'd like to see them not fleeing in terror. Um, And and I think you need to have big preserves to change the behavior of animals and, and allow, you know, coyotes um, to not be constantly fearing for their lives, for example. So that's, that's just one way I look at it is, well, no, we'll have succeeded when coyotes don't even look up when we uh, drive or walk by. Uh, I'd love to, I'd love to have that be part of the future, but yeah, on, on this issue of, of, of the appropriate scope, you know, we realize that, even as we um, try to accelerate the pace of um, acquisition and and creating and expanding our uh, shortgrass prairie preserves in the Southern Plains, um, we we definitely need to have continual engagement with folks across the Great Plains that are doing this great work, including of course, American Prairie, but also about the landowners and the communities that live in the Great Plains, and I think that there's the potential for great excitement. Um, the Great Plains Ecotourism Coalition, I think, is doing a, an excellent job of really um, showing folks that um, there's just so much beauty um, in this area, and it's it's well worth conserving. Tom Butler wrote a beautiful book called Wildlands Philanthropy, um, where he looked at, at 40 different cases studies of how buying private land can lead to these epic, uh, you know, parks um, throughout the world. And so I I do think it's really, um, it's really inspiring work. Uh, This is a a labor of love. um, And this is about creating beauty in a world where, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of ugliness. Um, And so it, it brings us joy at Southern Plains Land Trust every day, to know that we're making tangible progress for the prairie.
0: Uh, you guys really provide a lot of hope. And I thank you so much for taking the time to be here on the podcast today. My pleasure.
1: Yeah. yeah. Thank you uh, for, for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.